Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to another episode of the Rattlecast. This is episode number 81. Thanks so much for joining me. Our guest today is Derek Sheffield, who's on the line. Before we begin, though, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been publishing since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and we know you love poetry, which is why you're here. So please do click the like button. I see 13 people already have on YouTube. That's wonderful. It's a good number early. I didn't even have to ask you. Um, over on uh, Facebook, let's see, we got 12 people watching live right now as people trickle in. Um, good to see you all there. Make sure you click something on Facebook. If you're not following us um, or turning on subscribe or turning on notifications, wherever you're listening to this right now, please do that. That really helps. Uh, Poetry doesn't spread around the internet that much without your help, so we really appreciate it when you can. Now, we have a special guest today before we get to Derek Sheffield. Um, Zoe Sheffield is here, who is the first Sheffield uh, family member to have a poem in Rattle. Um, she beat her dad by several years. I don't know if she rubs <laughs> that in a little bit. <laughs> but uh, Zoe first appeared in um, this episode, um, episode, this issue of... Um, the, the Rattle Young Poets Anthology in, in uh, 2015. She was uh, six then. I think she may be 13 now. Uh, but here she is, and Zoe Sheffield. Hey, Zoe, how are you doing today? I am okay. <laughs> yeah. Is this, uh, have you done poetry readings before? Um, no. <laughs> and um, let me ask, do you, are you still writing? So this was, um, you know, five or six or seven years ago that you wrote this poem. Are you still writing poetry? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Well, um, well, let's hear it. Your poem was uh, Peace and Rain, and a really wonderful, um, wonderful poem here. Do you want to go ahead and read it? Sure. Okay. okay. The raindrops fall and all that is quiet. A soft wind blows a tear off your face. The sense of a penny is less than your love. A good night. Excellent. And that was uh, Peace and Rain by Zoe Sheffield from uh, Ripa number 15. Do you want to talk about... Um, the poem a little bit. What were you thinking? Do you remember what you were thinking when you wrote that? I do not remember. <laughs> I think I came into my dad's office when he was, I think he was away on a trip, and I just saw his notebook open, and I flipped open to a new page, and I just started writing that. I don't remember what I was thinking, though. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. Well, it's such an imaginative little poem. We just love it so much, which is why we love these uh, Rattle Young Poets anthologies. So thanks so much for sharing that, Zoe, and for, and for reading it today. Thank you. Cool. Okay. Well, now I think we'll move on to um, Father hey. Derek. So, hey, Derek. It's good to see you, too. Um, hey, Tim. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, um, what's it like having a famous poet daughter? <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel outshined? I have to tell you, um, I'm sort of, there is a, there's a strange sort of disappointment now that I've, I've finally made it in through the gates at Rattle Magazine. Um, I, there was, I, I actually, I loved the fact that not only Zoe, but Kelsey had both appeared in Rattle Magazine. Um, and I, uh, was continuing to rack up rejection notes <laughs> and, uh, so, um, I don't know. It's weird. It's like, oh, oh, great. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I'll take the, the acceptance. Um, but, um, yeah, no, it, it was, I kind of, there was, it was like a red badge of courage or something. If, 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 you know, like, oh yeah, well, you know, well, Zoe's been in there, but, 
I, I have to tell you um, that uh, that's the most information I've ever gotten from Zoe about the genesis of that poem. Oh, interesting. And and it and from my perspective, I went into my at that time I had a uh, a little room in the garage building uh, that was my office, my study, and I remember going out early one morning, about five thirty in the early dark or something. And here was my notebook, um, and I like to use like to use these big kind of uh, sketchbooks um, where I can write down lots of stuff and and uh, sort of scribble and stuff. And Zoe had been already sort of colonizing it a little bit, as you can see here. Uh, now and then, I would I would go in there and see little little drawings and stuff like this, um, but. This time was, and I, I saw that this, it was open to this fresh page, and here was this poem. And I looked at it, and I thought, and, and here's the, I, I scanned it. Oh, wow. I've got the, the original. Mm-hmm. Um, See, that is just one of the best lines. The sense of a penny is less than your love. I mean, that is one of those lines that just stick with you forever. Where the hell, exactly, where the hell did that come from? I mean, I saw this thing and it was sort of like, you know, seeing a paw print out, out in the woods or something. It was, uh, <laughs> it was astonishing. I mean, it was like, it was like, hold it, is that my print? No, that's not my poem. Who was here? Who left a poem? And oh my gosh, that's Zoe's. That's so Zoe. Um, it was a, it was a moment of, of absolute wonder. And I mean, she's, she's never done that, uh, since where she's just gone in, turned it to a fresh page and left this poem there. Um, but, uh, I mean, it was, it was really a special moment and, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. And then that, that was the one you all picked for the anthology. Uh, yeah, you know what's interesting? Uh, we, have, we just picked um, poems for the next anthology. And another poet, um, which we haven't even told him yet, it was just this weekend we were going over the poems, um, Mark Allen DiMartino, who's been on the Rattlecast, his daughter did the same thing. He found a slip of paper with a poem on it at the same age. Um, and, and we're going to be publishing that poem in um, the Young Poets Anthology coming up. And what do you think it is, though, about there's like a magic in kids. Like It feels like we're, as poets, we're trying to get back to that place that we used to be at all the time as kids, where the world is a wonder and we're just sort of, you know, riffing on the, the, just the, the craziness of creation. Or what, what are we doing? Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's exactly right. It reminds me of something that one of my teachers, David Wagner, used to tell us um, with respect to that. Uh, he said, all, all, you, all we can do is, is try not to get in the way of ourselves, is try not to let um, that critical, um, that analytical, um, that adult part of ourselves uh, get in the way of this natural creative force that we that we that we come into life with. Uh, Naomi Shihab Nye has a has a poem uh, called "Where Children Live." I think that speaks to the contrast um, between um, us adults and those those natural poets. 
And you know, she's funny. She says, yeah, I don't, I don't write poems anymore. I mean, what she would do, she would at that time, you know, when she was six, seven, eight, nine, she would come into my office and she'd be like, Oh, what are you, Oh, you're working on a poem. She said, okay, well, I want to, I want to write a poem. And she would just speak a poem out to me and I would transcribe it for her. And she probably composed, I don't know, 10 or 12 poems like that. She has another probably 20 poems that she actually has written and composed. And I don't, she hasn't been showing me much lately, but just while she was here waiting for us to get going, oh, wow. she, she drew this, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, she's always making something. It's a, it's a painting or she's writing in her journal or she's making a little TikTok video. Yeah, it's just amazing how creative kids are. And then it sort of fades away at a certain age. Um, you know, we, I think uh, we start to get self-conscious and not letting that freedom out or, or something. Um, and it, it takes a long time to learn how to get back to that place where you're, you're being spontaneous and letting things happen. Um, but let's, yeah. Uh, yeah, we could go on and on talking about, about kids' poetry, but let's, let's talk about your poetry. And um, let's start out with a poem of yours. Um, I think you wanted to start with uh, Daughter and Father in Winter, which is a good, a good place to go, given the, the introduction here. Yeah. Um, and real quick on that note about poetry and kids, um, when people would ask William Stafford, when did you start writing poems? He said, when did you stop? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to dovetail off of Zoe. And here's a poem that was just a gift of, um, of a winter's day called Daughter and Father in Winter. Clap like this, she says. And we clap the stuttering snaps of the kindling coming to life in the stove we have scooted close to, to play the game she makes as the fire goes. Raise your arms, and we move like flames, waving hello and goodbye to the snow outside our windows. Now close your eyes, and she gets us to bunch ourselves into balls and hold tight inside the heat's growing belly. Don't peek. And I don't stop peering into the dark, silence, ash. Look, it's snowing in my eyes. Yes, I say, opening mine. And I'm starting to freeze. She opens her eyes and sees the frost in my beard. Her laughter ignites another fire. And that was Daughter and Father in Winter from um, Derek Sheffield's newest book, Not for Luck. And that's a good intro um, poem to read, I think, Derek, because it feels to me like um, looking back at your work, you were um, sort of focused on nature poetry um, or echo poetics or however you'd want to want to phrase that. And then it seems like this book um, feels like introducing uh, the main theme seems to be introducing nature to your own children. Um, that comes up again and again, or poems um, where you're experiencing nature as a father, like sort of for the second time through new eyes. Um, is that um, is that something you were conscious of as you were writing, or did these poems just sort of come out that way? Um, 
Uh, wow, I, I have to say that's a pretty astute analysis of what I've been realizing has been happening in my own work. And um, in the in the first book, through the second skin, um, you're exactly right. They were that was uh, almost all really focused more on uh, more on eco poetry or uh, poetry engaging the more than human world. Um, but right at the end of that book. Uh, the daughters start to come in, and what happened is um, just for you know several years. Um, every time I went to write a poem, they they just kept clambering into them, or it was something that they did um, that put me in that poem making space. That. Um, that space where um, Alicia Stallings in that great interview that you did with her in this, um, the current issue of Rattle, she talks about that sort of inward gaze where everything, I think, is sparkles or something. And uh, so it, it wasn't really in my control. It was, um, you know, I'm just uh, living my life and and trying to pay attention and, and, uh, and those are the, um, and yeah, the daughters were, they, they became the muses really. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, do you want to just explain what, um, what echo poetry is like, like how did you, um, start writing nature poetry first of all? And then, um, and, and what is the sort of goal? Like, do you have, is it just something that you appreciate and sort of appears in your poems in the same way? Or do you think there's a sort of political motivation for doing it? Like for, um, like, do you think it's something that needs to be written because of the, the state of the world? I mean, I always think of that, um, um, that as a Donald Justice poem that, that we're in the time of the dying of the animals. Um, and we, we are, you know, so is, is it a, is it a political decision to sort of make poetry meaningful through nature? Or is it just something that you are drawn to? Um, and, and, and how are you drawn to it? Yeah, that's a um, it's a great question, uh, and it, it I don't know how conscious it was. Um, I don't think it was very conscious. I think it was there all along, um, even though there were times like I remember in 1994 being at a writing conference um, in. Montana on Flathead Lake with Bill McKibben and Patty Ann Rogers and some other Janice Ray, some other uh, writers uh, were there, William Kittredge and uh, Bill McKibben had just recently published The End of Nature and he, he said to us all there, I never forget it very clearly, in 94 he said whatever you do use, try to use your art to um, spread the word about climate change um, we need to, we, we, all hands on deck, you know, he, back in 94, he was saying that. And it was interesting because Patty and Rogers, you know, stepped up after him and it's like, whoa, hold on there. You know, art is something uh, different than that. If we try to yoke it too stridently, uh, it will become something else, propaganda. And um, that's not what we're about. And so it's a very good discussion to have. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I've, I've heard things like that and I've certainly been part of this culture and part of this culture that is behind, um, 
the what what we're calling and what we're seeing as the sixth mass extinction on planet Earth. Um, but I have to say, if I think back uh, to my childhood and growing up in these second growth woods uh, in the South Puget Sound and kind kind of around rural Oregon a little bit there too, um, I think that that uh, biophilia is the is the term. I think it was uh, E.O. Wilson who coined that um, love of life, biophilia, um, was always there. And to answer your question about eco-poetry, I think I was naturally drawn there because it, it's just, you know, one of my primary concerns as a human being. It, it's just, it's written in my upbringing or in my, in, in my uh, genetic code. Um, and... Um, and so I think eco-poetry, some of it can have a more overt political um, flavor. I, I would say probably any poem these days is political um, to some extent. Um, but I think of, and, and you know, we could have a long academic discussion. Robert Hass uh, wrote a um, I don't know, a 30-page beautiful introduction to the eco-poetry anthology that Trinity University Press published. And, um, and then uh, Laura Gray Street and, um, uh, uh, and uh, oh, geez, Anne Fisherworth, Anne Fisherworth, the two editors of the eco-poetry anthology, um, they also wrote some really erudite introductions about the nature of this new nature poetry. And, um, so, but I think that really sort of, I don't, I don't, I, I just think of it as, as poetry that is aware of our interconnected reality and that we as human beings are animals and that we are not here without the living systems around us. That's how I think of, uh, eco poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'd love to talk about this more, um, and, and I think we will later probably, but let's do more poems because people start getting upset if I don't let you read enough. Um, so yeah. <laughs> they do. They start to say, more poems in the, in the chat window, which I should um, remind everybody that um, if you're new here, you can leave questions for Derek in the chat windows on either Facebook or YouTube, and I'll pass them along. So if anybody has any questions, leave them now, and, um, and I'll pass them along later. Um, but, uh, but let's hear maybe t the next two poems you wanted to read. Oh, sure. So I thought about reading this one because this is another Zoe poem, uh, Zoe poem. And it's one that um, I think may be appropriate now for, especially for young, for all of us in the pandemic. Um, but especially for our young people who are growing up in this isolated way. It's called First Grade. Sunday afternoon, and she looks up from her drawing, wants to know if I know the game where you put your head down and thumb up until someone picks you. Yes, I say, across the room and half listening. Well, I always pick my friends, but they never pick me. I pause in the middle of a sentence. Who are your friends? Everyone, she says. 
as if I had asked one plus one or the color of the sky. Sunlight draws a skewed rectangle across the floor. I see, I say, and let my notebook close, seeing children in rows, heads on desks, her big ears poking through sandy hair, listening for a step or a breath. Yes, I remember that game. And I stand and walk over to find the outline of her hand plunging through a white sky. That was first grade. Love that answer, everyone. <laughs> um, let's, let's do the next one that you wanted to do too. Okay, so um, here's a little, a little lift after that called Hitch. This ceaseless going you follow when you follow a stream back into the hills, pearls and moils, wrinkles into flats, its glassy aim breaking to reshape every slope, it is bound to flow and crumple each try to make sense of whirl and glint and hold it. What's this gliding your way on that lit skin but a white dab of a day moth stuck upside down, wings full spread and legs like sutures, crookedly struggling? And you who have seen this many times, this time are grabbing for a stick to reach with and miss and miss again and stumble jog to try once, no, twice more before you lift it dripping into the air even as you catch a glimpse of yourself in the streaming sheen holding a bite-sized hitch in earth's weft. For you do not stop your dimpled twin from swiping it onto your finger and peering into the pin-pricked black of its globed eyes, which must see you multitudinously, the you who has killed and eaten and licked his greasy fingers, the you who has hurt others and borne grudges, and the you who will again, and this one who walks upstream to the tallest pine tree in sight to divert a little life for once, at least this one onto the bark where it crawls wing shivered into one of the many furrows puzzling its way up past how many flakes and branches breaking, how many rays of light and how many needles flaring all the way up to where a wisp of cloud in the whole blue sky floats. Another beautiful poem from Not For Luck that was Hitch. Um, an interesting question already from um, um, Holly Thorpe. She asks if you'd describe your philosophy as animism or aligning with animism. Oh, um, yeah, I like that. Animism. Um, that, uh, let's see if I can recall what that is exactly, that... Um, I think that just speaks to the agency of, of all beings, right? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, that everything has sort of a spirit, and you know, and, and that we're all interconnected. Um, 
through sort of a kind of a spirit. I think that's what animism means. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was drawn early to um, the American transcendentalists and uh, their conception, uh, Thoreau and Emerson, and uh, their conception of the oversoul, which I think was um, really about the same thing um, in animism. Um, it is, it's astonishing to me that uh, I think we're getting better on this, but for a long time people wouldn't um, wouldn't uh, uh, think that animals had a any kind of spiritual um, nature to them, that they were some kind of little clocks left to um, do what they do around us. Yeah, I don't know how how you could think that really, but it definitely is something we thought for a long time, and still and still through the you know the the farming industry and things um, treat it that way in a lot of cases. Although maybe a virus I could see as not having as being a kind of clock. I'm not sure that has any spirit, but um, but um, but animals definitely do. Um, somebody else asked, and I was wondering this too about the structure of that poem, Hitch, which um, you know the the way the stanzas move around the page, and it reminded me of um, sort of bark flowing down a stream maybe you know like moving over rocks and things um mm. that's kind of what i was imagining but is that what you had in mind um uh, yeah i i think it is and um this um might call it a concrete poem or a shape poem um with this uh kind of you know um riverine the stanzas are riverine as they uh, as they move down the page, sinuous, um, wending, they wend. Um, you know, the the all the shape poems I've written, like just like this one, it's 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 strange to me um, how the shape came from the process of making the poem, and you know, of course, that's what I think we love. And I'm I'm guessing that all of us here tonight are practicing poets, that we have a practice. And when we're engaged in that practice, we're in touch with with something that feels like the other, like God, the muses, the divinity, the cosmos. Uh, I don't know, but um where we go back and look at our work and we say, Oh my gosh, I had, I had no idea that was, that was saying that. Okay. You know, um, and, and that feeling that it's working through us. And, uh, um, I think that the boring term we use for that in instruction is the writing process. <laughs> okay. My gosh, that is like, Oh God, you want to kill something. Um, whoa, no, no, you know, I think that's what it's talking about, but man, it's, <laughs> we gotta, we gotta use better terms that might do some, some, uh, great work in, uh, in composition instruction. Yeah. I, I think of it as a spiritual process of getting into the sort of state where you can be a conduit for that higher th- mystery. Um, I, I wish we would call it that, although maybe, maybe not that, but, but there's some, there's some mystery and there's some special thing into the, the state, the mental state that we get in when we create art. 
Um, which actually leads back to the, the question about political poetry, because I feel like um, there's sort of two ways political poetry can be done. And there's one way that's kind of easy, which is sort of just cheerleading for good values, kind of, and, and saying, like, this is a good thing to say. And so I'm going to sort of preach to the choir on this. But then um, the difficult thing, which I think to me was where poetry's value comes in, is in a, like in a lot of your poems, there's a there's a sort of a, a sense of trying to understand what the problem is and like what your relationship is to it. And, and there's sort of a, a figuring out that's going on in the process of the writing. And so that you can come to a better understanding of what the political problem is. And to me, that's that kind of feels like what's useful. Um, do you do you think of it that way? Or do you think about not being preachy? I think you used the word preachy before, but that's the thing. It's like a lot of political poetry, a lot of maybe slam poetry, for example, um, is sort of preaching to the, the congregation and the audience. And you get this sort of great energy going, but it's all things that you already know are good, um, which is sort of why I'm more drawn to the sort of more complicated stuff. But um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And when I'm talking to my students about this kind of thing and about that, um, where the performance can come into poetry, um, and, and we have performance poetry, and I just talk about American poetry as this big house with all kinds of rooms in it. And that's one of the rooms in the house. And those poems rely on their presentation on the um the uh uh the theatrics of um of their presentation and uh uh to to really have their effect um see i think it's more than just that though because i think it's um it's an actual like um direction of intent or something like i think there's a there's a way that a a poetry performance ends up feeling sort of like in a way a rock concert does where there's a coherence of consciousness and we all get like a big emotional feel from that like we all get to experience a sort of collective emotion which we don't outside of like music very often and um and so it's like moving from the individual out and like sort of embracing the entire audience is sort of what what performance poetry does which is like the other direction from um looking inward for that like spark with a magnifying glass or something um and i I feel like it's too different it's not just the the style of the presentation they're actually the aims um, you know, there's this way you sort of like whoop out um, in agreement for um, for performance poetry a lot because you agree with it in the same way that you do talking to, you know, like listen to a great sermon or something. And, um, and, and poetry doesn't function on the page that way because it's like a more intimate thing that turns in on itself or something. Um, I don't know. Am I making sense at all? Or, you know, because I wonder if, because if, this has been my opinion for a long time about political poetry. Um, but I wonder if, and, and this goes on... Um, who was it here? Christine um, Bissonnette asks about what you think the function of poetry is today. And I've been wondering if maybe finding that sort of coherence and that like agreement maybe is a function that's that's worthwhile. Um, I don't know. What what do you think, first of all, about that? And then what do you think the function of poetry is if it, if it doesn't relate? Well, I think I really like your thinking on that and think it's helpful to think about poetry for the page, or you might say literary poetry or crafted poetry, whatever uh, we're talking about here, a more nuanced poetry, um, where the arrow is going more inward, and then 
performance poetry and these um, these events um, where the arrow is going more outward. And um, I uh, I think that that's really helpful because I I and I think it that there that it reminds me of like my favorite concerts to go to musical concerts are the concerts where I I've already I've already I already know the work I love the songs I play them maybe on my guitar I've listened to them in silence you know intently on my own many times and then I go and there's this big sharing you know and I love both experiences mm-hmm. they are very different that the first one is much more inward um uh but the the second one yeah I think it is going outward and I don't know I think all of us contemporary poets can um really i think contemporary poetry needs to think about readers um more often and that we need to think we need to have the arrows go out more often and not too far inward mm-hmm. uh, and and to be inviting to our readers um i think you know it's no wonder that um you know some people have turned away from poetry unfortunately i think we've uh you know, we probably deserved that. Um, and, um, you know, and, and to come to that extra party, that second part of your question, what's the role of poetry today? Well, I think it's the same role as it's always been. Uh, it's, uh, uh, my gosh, I don't know. Boy, that, that's a big question. I mean, what, what, I, what I think it, today, especially what it can do and how it can be helpful is, it slows us down. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, turn the, turn them off, turn it off. Go, you know, um, if, if I didn't write poetry, I would have a meditation practice. If I didn't write poetry, um, I might be a pastor or a monk or something. Um, uh, really that's, or an ornithologist, um, and, um, so slowing us down, um, honoring the, the in, interiority of, of a life, um, so much, there's this hyper, hyper capitalism, hy- hyper technocracy that we are part of. We're part of this massive social experiment, I think. I mean, we have been a long time, but but um, you know um, what an ama- what an amazing, uh, uh, somewhat concerning time we are in. You know when you have all these people in the tech industry who are who are saying, "Oh, whoa, whoa, hey, I didn't, I I created the like button, but I didn't know it was going to be used for that." <laughs> Except they did, though. But, okay. uh, so, uh, where uh, um, so. Um, yeah, to, to honor that individual life in this commercialization and this, um, this uh, oh, this celebratification of culture. Um, and that when you're making poems, as we were talking about earlier, and you have that experience um, that feels like a revelation in the process of any poem that, that, you know, is, is working. And even the ones that just have little revelations and the whole thing doesn't, doesn't really come together. Um, but no one can take that away from you. That's, 
Um, it's like uh, what Guy Clark sings, the lack of money in poetry is what keeps the poet free. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, that art, that individual art, I don't know of any other kind of poetry that, uh, any other kind of art that's, that's, that speaks to the individual human existence on this planet um, more effectively, comprehensively, paradoxically, um, beautifully than poetry does. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, it's the oldest art, and, um, and I think it's just so fundamental to what it means to be human. Um, I thought, would you say the role of poetry is also attention? Like, 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 doesn't it change the way you walk through the woods, knowing that you might write a poem about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, and that gets back to, again, that terrific, I just love that interview. I've, I've been following Alicia Stallings' work for some time, and this, this interview, if you guys haven't read it yet, is just masterful and, and beautiful of, of Alicia Stallings, and um, it's a real treasure to have. But it, I remember in there that she was talking about, again, that you get into that place, and, and if you are... If you have this, I mean, I, I was thinking about it actually just even earlier today. It's sort of like, um, I mean, when when you focus on the process, when you think about poetry, it's like, okay, so I'm someone who's going to be making poems, and you organize your life around that to, to, to make that happen. You're sort of a compass. You're, you're sort of training your compass to always point to that. No matter which way you turn, you know, it's always going to be, pointing that way. And, um, and yeah, I mean, when you live your life like that, and when you write the way um, so many of us do, then anything in your life that happens to you uh, might end up in a poem. And, um, and yeah, it does, uh, it does sort of make everything sparkle. Um, it, it, uh, it's in service to life. It doesn't take away from life. I, I, you know, you get back, you get to that romantic notion of suffering. I need to suffer so I can make this great poem. <laughs> oh God! You know, thank thank goodness, William Stafford was was a you know a, a, a role model for me. You know, I mean, he he didn't believe that at all. Like, oh yeah, no, don't man, if you're depressed, go get treated. Don't don't wait. You know, try to write a, a gooder poem. Um, but uh, yeah, poetry in service to to life. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting questions in the uh, chat windows. I think we'll, we'll get back to them, but let's do two more poems to make sure we get, we get a good number of poems in this episode. Okay. Um, so let's see here. Um, how about, I, I should do one. Oh, that's the rattle, uh, magazine. I want to do a Kelsey poem here. Uh, this is the daughter's night. And um, as you may have noticed, Tim, the daughters grow up through the book. So at some point, Zoe's sister enters stage left. And this is her calling. Have to call someone, she says, and dials a bright song on the fat buttons of her plastic mermaid phone. As we cross the parking lot of the school that has just taken her pinching, kicking, hugging, sorry-saying sister for the next nine months. The one she loves, loves best in the world and hasn't been without since she was out of her mother. It's not her sister though she talks to as I buckle her, but Echo, 
that black lab, our neighbors, were always calling back across the road until the screech one night made silence repeat itself across the valley. Echo, she says, we've been looking for you. And she goes on catching up with that shadow of a dog until we pass a tree full of crows and wants to know if I know what they're saying. Last week, her phone started ringing all by itself right after she sat on it. Oh no, it's Mia, she said. I've never seen Mia, of course, or any of the others, but knowing her through reports that begin, you won't believe what Mia said. I said, don't answer, but it's a good thing she did. Turned out to be Curly wearing a Mia mask and calling from Luna's house. This happened not long after she saw her baby self on the computer and she called that bald dribbler to say she didn't talk good. Now she's tapping the back of my seat. We're almost home and it's my turn. So I steer with one hand and dial with the other an operetta of bonk, ding, and boing into the future to a time that may come for her as it did for me when her days turn up empty as the eyes of a doll left behind, her heart a tangle of crow cries. Here, I say, and hand her the phone. For who better to recall that possible future self to the inexhaustible dream that is her calling? May she keep herself the way a shell cupped to an ear, no matter how far or broken, never lets go of ocean for you. And that was her calling from uh, Not For Luck. Let's hear the next one, too. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is a poem that was born in blood. And I, um, I, I don't know. Doug Heckman may be uh, tuning in tonight from Moscow, Idaho. Uh, if you are, Doug, I just want to say again, I'm sorry. This is a true account of wood getting from Up the Chumstick, with apologies to Doug Heckman. Crossing a steep slope of brushy second growth, I put my hand out for leverage and felt it give, and gave a shout, and Heckman turned to take the snag's notched top with his forehead. When he looked up, blood gleamed between the fingers of his leather glove, and more dripped a trail back to the truck. As the doctor needled the first stitch, he asked what happened. By the time you figure all the costs, he said to me in my work clothes and saw stink, you're better off buying your wood. Said Heckman, holding his head perfectly still and eyeing that needle. Well, that's dumb. Then you'd lose all the fun. Not a prick of irony, but the bright slice of a meteor across the exact night I was gazing into. Another seven stitches, a short drive, and he took the stacking so I could have the skinny rounds of the snag that blazed him. That's what I see when I see him now. A way ahead as clear as his. 
The rest of that day, the bandage stuck through heave and sweat, and we kept at it for two cords of heft and swing and grapple and heap, moving our bodies as well as we could through all we hauled out of those woods and getting the work done as the land split the light of a beautiful wound. And that was true account of wood getting from up the chumstick from uh, not for luck. Um, on the topic, we were talking about sort of the need for echo poetry and um, Sally D asked, do you think there's a difference between man-made and natural? Or do you see people and all they do is natural? Is that is that a useful sort of dichotomy to make? That, you know, I mean, in a way, everything is natural, of course, because we're creations of evolution just as much as anything else. And um, I, I don't know. Is there is there? Do you see a big difference? Mm, I know that is the big question, isn't it? Right, like human exceptionalism, I think, is the term for that, um, and it's something I think about all the time. It's something we wrestle with in our language. When we talk about nature poetry, we're talking about poetry that doesn't have humans, that doesn't, you know, isn't about humans. Uh, but of course, we are nature. We rely on that dichotomy. It's a false one. That's why we've got better language coming, coming along these days, like the more than human world or other than human world. We talk about that. But yeah, um, yeah, no, I think, it, yes, what we do is, is nature. Um, it is, uh, and, and it is nature too. I think the, um, our, our sense of, of, of ethics or, or morality, um, to, to, to see, um, what we are doing <laughs> to the rest of the beings on the planet, uh, to the living world. Um, um, and again, even there, I'm, relying on that dichotomy when I say the rest of the beings, what we do to this, what we do to that is what we do to ourselves. Um, we, we know that. Um, and, um, so, so yes, it, we are nature, but we can't confuse that with that means everything we do is good. Right. Um, I think that's the crux mm -hmm. of, yeah, the, the naturalistic fallacy <laughs> in reverse or something. Um, mm. uh, there was a lot interesting discussion going back about um, about reading poems. And um, it was back when we were talking about, about performance poetry a little bit and comparing it to page poetry. But um, it, um, people were talking about whether or not um, you enjoy reading. Like, not I mean, not you in per personally, but uh, in general. Um, and, and there, somebody said something about, it's, it's way back in the comments, but how... Um, um, there's a sense that we shouldn't enjoy our own creativity, which is a toxic sort of sentiment. Do you find yourself enjoying reading, which is what I'm wondering about? Do you like reading your own poems? And um, do, do, is, that, is that something that you feel or do you sort of get sick of them? Because I don't know, it, it, for me, it seems like uh, you kind of assume that, that your experience is like rest. I love reading my own for a while and then I get sick, of them, <laughs> which is kind of how it works for me. How does it work for you? Well, I mean, I think it's a good it's a good sign if you're really sick of the poems in your man manuscript, then it's probably going to get picked up by a press. Mm -hmm. good idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, um, yeah, I, I do. I do like reading my poems. Um, 
I don't, I'm not manic about it though. I don't, um, I don't really seek out many opportunities. Um, if, and when I do, um, then it's, that it's because the book is a book has just come out and, and I got to do a couple of these things. Um, I mean, I actually just, I love reading poems and quiet on the page and in the early dark. I mean, that's how I start out every morning. I've got, you know, a stack of poems, uh, books that I'm reading. I'll read a few poems out of each book. And, um, before I, uh, maybe start, um, scrawling on some paper and, um, and I'll read those aloud, uh, to myself, um, because, um, it's, it's an oral art form and, um, and that's, I mean, it's very strange because, we create these things in typically in silence and solitude. And then we take them to, you know, this reading, which if we weren't, you know, in front of our computer screens, we would be in this, um, big hall or, or small, uh, uh, the smallest bookstore or something gathered together. And, um, and that's very in- uh, intensely social. So there's, I don't know, there's a paradoxical nature to it. And I think it takes a little bit of both. Um, I like readings, I think maybe for the same reason that I like, um, I like it when I loved getting your note when you, um, finally Tim (laughs) accepted a poem. I mean, come on. Uh, and, uh, and I like that because, almost instantly turns into energy that goes back into making the next poems. And, um, and I think that's what it's, it's all, all about always is the, uh, uh, honoring the process and how you're organizing your life to, um, to, to, uh, help yourself be in that, that making space. Yeah. I think that's a great, great point um you know i think one of the best things about a reading is that you want to write go write a poem at home afterward you know i you know whether it's at the used to be um at the college library i used to go to poetry readings i'd go run in my dorm room and write and now after these i always want to write poems and and that's kind of the there's a way that that a, a poetry is sort of a grand conversation you know and and so you sort of feed in some of it and then you sort of put it back out and um there's a way that this all works together in some kind of synergistic way Um, to use one of those buzzwords from 10 years ago. Um, Let me see. So Patricia Rockwood um, asked about your writing process, and I'm curious about that. She um, wants to know what your writing process is like, and do you write every day, whether you feel inspired or not? You mentioned earlier this sketchbook that you have. Um, So I was curious about that, too. How does that, how do you, how does your sketchbook work, and how often do you um, use it? Well, um, the sketchbook is, uh, I don't know. It can last for years because I, I draw a little, you know, I just, th- this is, this is like quotations or little ideas or, a, a, a something that one of the daughters said, or, um, uh, something I'm reading a dream, um, the here from Thor Hansen's talk on feathers, you know, at bird fest. Um, I carry a little notebook around with me and then 
will transcribe them into here. Um, and do that as much as possible. Try to avoid the speaking into the notes on my iPhone or, or something like that because um, it gets deeper if you involve the body more. Hmm. Um, and uh, But in terms of, of writing, drafting, uh, for a long time I've been uh, using these um, – uh, what are these uh, legal pads? Yeah, legal pads uh, like this, and um, just have it on a clipboard. Um, and I really like those because they're long, and um, and I I always start out uh, with hand handwritten drafts, and I and I try to stay as long as I can with handwritten drafts, and then at a certain point when it feels right. I jump to the um, computer and, and that's super exciting uh, to do that because, you know, you see it in the typeface on the screen. It's like, Oh wow. Now it's sort of like becoming real now, you know, out of the handwriting. Um, and, uh, and I, I, I like that. I, and, and I, I've actually even, I think it was maybe because I was, reading about Barry Lopez's life and how he used this IBM Selectric 3, I was remembering my, uh, my, my grandfather's old uh, typewriter, typewriter. It was an IBM Selectric 2. It was a, um, a red one that my mother had, uh, had given me after, uh, after he'd, he'd passed. And, um, oh, man, somewhere along the way, I, I lost it. it. It left me. And... I've been thinking like I would actually like to get back to an electric typewriter. Hmm. Um, and the reason is because um, you know how you get on that computer and it's just so easy to look over an email or this or that. And, and then the next thing you know, what three hours have gone by and um, I don't know the term, the, the term that they, give us in the social dilemma that great documentary on netflix is persuasive tech hmm. persuasive tech and uh so um yeah no I, I i like staying staying on uh uh with the uh, the old tools as as long as possible in the process and that works for me yeah, I think um, that's a great point, too, just um, that persuasive tech. I think, um, you know, poetry and books um, are really the antidote to to that, you know. And I think the reason why books, if you look, um, you know, 15 years ago or so, everybody thought ebooks would take over. And the reason why ebooks don't is because they don't feel like your phone, you know. <laughs> you can get lost inside a real book. And um, and so book sales are in, in print and are taken off and, and the, the tablets and stuff really aren't. Uh, for the most part. Um, let's do, let's see. Well, first, um, Holly Thorpe asked um, if you could just tell about your amazing pin, the uh, the deer that you have on your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and where can she get one? Ah, okay. Well, let's see. First of all, I need to, we need to show you the pin right. Yeah, that is really cool. Oh, wow. That's even cooler than I thought. <laughs> and so this is, I don't know, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a mark of failure, perhaps. Um, one of my, um, 
uh, I happen to know Holly Thorpe, by the way. She's she was one of my very talented recent um, poetry students who's working on her uh, Master of Fine Arts right now at Eastern Washington University. Hi, Holly. Um, and so this pin was made by um, someone who came through the the same class you did about 15 years earlier, uh, Carly Federson. And Carly was um, also very talented and, um, oh gosh, uh, I think she took creative writing like five times or something before she finally <laughs> finally moved on. And anyway, she, uh, uh, she actually, instead of, she's not really making poems, she, she turned that art into jewelry hmm. and into jewelry making. And so this is Carly Federson makes these and it's D D E R S E N, uh, Federson. And if you Google her, um, these are, yeah, she does just beautiful work. She's in New Orleans now. She went from Little Wenatchee, Washington to New Orleans. Uh, and um, she's got, she's still practicing. She's got a little shop there. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, she's not making poems, but really, you know, it's the, it's the same thing. It's like Zoe, Zoe's doing a lot more painting these days and drawing, um, but it's, it's the same. Yeah. Yeah. Art is art is art. It's all looking inside yourself and, and pulling out that magic. Um, we were supposedly up on time, but since we started with Zoe, let's, um, let's do maybe an extra 10 minutes and maybe, um, we'll do one poem, then a question, then another poem or something like that. Okay. Is, uh, is Rena Espaillat here tonight by any chance? Um, I don't think I've ever seen her in the chat, but there's a lot of people who don't leave comments, so I don't know. I think you have to have a YouTube account or a Facebook account to leave actual comments, so she could be here. I saw her. I saw her last night. Um, it was great. I saw her last night in a, in a, through Zoom, of course, and, uh, through the screen. Um, I was going to read this one for her, but Rena, if you're not here, you know what I need to do is maybe I'll, I'm going to, because we're probably running a little long. Um, I'm going to read, uh, I should probably read that poem that you published, right? Well, finally... well you can, or not. if you do, then I can use the audio for uh, the website on Friday. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's up to you. Whatever you want to read, that was good. Okay. No, I, I do. I, I want to read that. Um, and be, because I'm grateful, uh, to you for publishing it and, uh, want to honor that. Um, I also want to just read it uh, out of here because I just want to say that um, I've had some, you know, poems in Poetry Magazine. I've had some poems that were published in places like the Georgia Review and then picked up by Poetry Daily. And then I would hear from readers once that that happened. Well, I have to say I'm really, uh, as we've made abundantly clear, this is the first time you've allowed me in these pages. Um, <laughs> And I have to say that I'm really impressed at the readership that you have cultivated at Rattle because I have been, people have been tracking me down about this poem. And um, there was a young woman who first got a hold of me who, who said, I was reading your poem and I knew it was your poem, but I kept seeing myself as you and your father as my father. And then just recently, I had another um, another fella uh, reached out to me uh, about this one. So, um, 
that's um, that tells me that that you you are you're really um, creating readers out there, and and that is doing us all a service. So thank you. Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, that's what the goal always is. It's the greatest thing to hear is that people are contacting the poets, which I do. Fortunately, we get to hear that a lot. Um, so, you know, the, I mean, the, the whole thing, reason we're here is for people to read and listen and share uh, poems. So it's great to hear that that's, that's the case. Okay. Yeah. So this is exactly what needs saying. There's father at the kitchen counter and there he is at the stovetop where a steel pot's beginning to bubble. Now he's picking up and putting away, now rinsing plates, for tomorrow it begins again. It never stops, your whole life with him. And now when you visit, he's standing at the sink, face clouded in steam, hands carefully drying each glass as you sit in the family room, sharing your life with your sisters. It keeps going, this hiding behind the sweeping and wiping, this acting as if the crumbs you might scatter or the dirt on your shoes is what matters. This pretending not to see you rolling around on the door, on the floor with your toddler daughters, one after the other over the years, plopped on that same red rug, shaking her hands and crying as you crooned, use your words. It never stops, this reserve of doing what needs doing. And his father before, always going or gone to harrow or hammer. And what about you? Alone in the dark of morning as you like, here in your house on a side street while your family sleeps on. How much longer? Will it be before you stop doing and start saying exactly what needs saying? Excellent. That was, of course, exactly what needs saying from uh, Not For Luck and Rattle Number 70. Um, you know, I was counting up. We've only done seven, or we're on pace to do seven poems. Let's do two more. Let's just go a little long, and that, that's fine. Well, why don't you do another one, then we'll do one more question, and then, uh, and then we'll read the last. Okay. Um, well, um, Great. Uh, this is um, a shorty. No, no, I'm going to go with the longie. I'm going to. This is. I'm going to send this out to Rena because she sent me a sweet email last week, um, and uh, said that she really appreciated this poem. Rena, this is for you, lady. This is. A, it wasn't the laundry. The father could not have known the woman he'd hired to be with his children while he followed his work to far cities would bring such pain. It wasn't the laundry, floors, or sack lunches, not the dropping off or picking up that did it. It came after dinner when she called them to a game and kept calling until even the boy closed the latest in a series of books where he'd been since his mother had left and unlocked his door and walked downstairs to get it over with. With that woman and his two sisters, 
He sat around the little used dining room table to connect four colored discs or link cool tiles with clicks across the polished wood or lay down a card. Uno. The pain they learned began in queries about their day and help with fractions and how to stitch a rip and fry potatoes. It grew in flowers from her garden the blue wheels of bachelor's buttons and purple-hearted sweet William. Do we live in your days, mother? Where this time, father? Their faces over years around that table starting to smile, to fly into laughter. Now that woman, neither father nor mother, lies in a distant bed, different people, on different shifts, lift spoons to her mouth, change her sheets. There is no more calling or hearing, and no games but the one in her eyes turned toward a window, where twice a day twilight touches her face, being neither day nor night, but a little of both, and both end and beginning. Here is the hurt their father did not know he was buying in every check he left on the kitchen counter. Yeah, that was a great poem. It wasn't the laundry from Not For Luck. Um, <clears throat> um, looking up back through the questions, um, who was it that asked? Uh, so Debbie Hendrich asked, um, she says, hey, old friend. Um, what is one thing you love to share with your poetry students? So we had, a, we had one student on already. Um, so I guess, what is your best advice for, for students? Because you have been teaching for a while and, and have had a good number of students. What, what, do you, um, what do you, advice do you give them? Well, hi, Debbie. How you doing? Uh, I, I can't see you out here from my connection, but, um, but I can picture your face. And um, it's been a while. Um, thanks for being here tonight. So, um, Hmm. Holly, what did I, what do I say that's, that's helpful? Did I really say anything that's helpful? Hmm. Let me think here. You know, I think, uh, the, the, the way we do it, um, it's just bringing the right work in to do the heavy lifting. It's, you know, letting it's, it's, uh, Um, letting them encounter the work uh, and and great work, anything, you know, finding out what turns people's cranks, what turns your crank, you know? Um, and, and um, you know, speaking of Rena Espaillat, uh, that's, so one of the poems that really does it for my students quarter after quarter is bilingual, bilingue, which um, I think is just a, it's a it's a masterful poem um, that speaks to a bilingual experience. It's beautifully crafted by one of the great um, formal poets in the language. I think of it as a perfect poem. I'm grateful to Dana Joya. I noticed I read uh, enjoyed his poem in here. Uh, Dana Joya and Joseph Kennedy um, were the ones who introduced me to that that poem in their um, anthology. Um, 
So um, I, I would say that's really my secret is just finding the right voices to bring in the classroom and, um, you know, paying, paying attention to what, uh, what gets you going, what gets them going. Holly, did, did Holly say anything? Did I say, have I, <laughs> um, I think Holly mentioned earlier, she's, her stream is a little behind. Um, okay. but, um, um, I, I love that turning your crank. Um, what, um, you, you mentioned earlier, um, having sort of self revelations as you write, do you remember the first time you had that experience? Was it, were you young or were you more, you know, cause sometimes a poem just clicks and you have that like magical feeling of knowing something you didn't knew, know, knowing something you didn't know you knew. Um, was there a time, a memorable experience that that happened for you first? That's exactly it. Right. How do I know what I think until I read what I've written? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was very early on. Um, I think, um, I think you, you started writing poems in high school too, right? Yeah, I did. I mean, I didn't expect to, um, but, but I just sort of did. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, and I know, uh, Alicia Stallings was the same way and, you know, um, and I, and for me it was, it was, I had this great teacher, Kevin Miller in high school and, um, and Pam Wise, I had, um, was uh, really important as well. Uh, these two fantastic teachers, these generous teachers who, who wrote poetry themselves. And, and, um, and so I remember right working on like the first poem that really got me excited for a short fiction and poetry class in high school. And it was, it was there even then this kind of mysteriousness to it that, um, I, uh, was such a draw it was, it was so intoxicating. Um, uh, much better than Bartles and James wine coolers. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, it was right there at the beginning. I can, I can remember that poem and the way it felt to be working on that thing. And the, and the, um, it just felt like the most potent thing in the world that, that you could be doing that, um, you know, uh, Fooling with words, as Coleman Barks uh, puts it, or you know, tinkering um, with language. Um, uh, uh, Robert Frost says, um, "Poetry is play for mortal stakes." Mm -hmm. um, I know you've got that Frost prompt for uh, for today. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just that feeling of creating something that never existed before. There's some just some magic in that. Um, let's finish out with one last poem. Which one did you want to close with? So um, this is another poem that um, is like a, like the rattle poem. It, it sort of got out there and started finding people, and then they started finding me. Uh, so good one to end on, and um, I think it goes back to to where we started tonight. And it has a title that spills, one of those titles that spills down into the poem. She gathers rocks wherever she goes. Make that sticks, no, leaves, which is to say heads of flowers and hips. More river than daughter, her arms fill with treasures of every trail. Hold this, she says. 
to make us her buckets, her pockets already clack and bristle full. It goes fast, they say, and it was going as they said it. For it's gone into us, counting to five, five times a day, saying, time for bed, time to wake, time to leave. And it's gone into her, quickening eyes and stride that have left us among all the things she once believed she couldn't leave behind. That was She Gathers Rocks from Not For Luck. Uh, Derek Sheffield, thanks so much for being a guest tonight. I, I love this book. Uh, I think it's one of the um, best books of fatherhood, really, that I've read, maybe that I can ever that I can think of. It's just beautiful poems about being a father. Um, the, in the title poem coming from that that middle school uh, poem, um, the the title is like the last line in that poem. That's just a, a just so many great poems in this book. Thanks so much for sharing a bunch of them with us and spending this hour and, and talking poetry. It's really been a pleasure. Um, and thanks to Zoe too for being on earlier. I know. I can't believe it, man. That's so exciting. I mean, she said yes. She said yes. I was, I was astonished. I mean, usually I'm just a, a source of great embarrassment to her. I love what Scott Russell Sanders said. I just read his new book of essays called The Way of Imagination. And he said that his children, you know, growing up, always looked at his essays and poems and stories as the way they would the potatoes grown by a farmer. <laughs> That's just a great line. <laughs> that's, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, so, yep, that's, that's, that's what's going on at this house, potatoes. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, keep it up, Derek. It was a pleasure talking to you. I hope you have a great night. Thank you, Tim. Bye. This was Derek Sheffield uh, with his newest book, which is just out from uh, – let, uh, let me pull this down. Um, just out from uh, Wheelbarrow Books. And you can find uh, more on Derek Sheffield at DerekSheffield.com, just like it, it's spelled uh, D-E-R-E-K Sheffield, S-H-E-F-F-I-E-L-D, DerekSheffield.com. So find his website there. Pick up a copy of this book, um, especially if uh, you're a father or you have a father or um, might be one soon. It's a really good book to read. Um, and especially if you care about um, the environment, too. I mean, um, we maybe I like the book so much because we you know, twice a week I go on long hikes with my kids, too. And um, I don't know that being in nature with kids is something that's really important, I think. Um, so that is the first hour of the show. As always, we're going to have an open mic um, in just a little bit. Let me show you how it works before I take a little breather for a second. Um, I'll put the numbers up on screen right now. So what you do first, if you'd like to participate in the open mic, is send your poem or a link to where it's published. I can show it that way too, to openmic at rattle.com right now. So I have it. And when you're reading it, I can put it up like we were doing for Derek's poems. Um, and after you do that, pick one or the other. If you'd like to be on video and can do it, um, send me a chat message over Skype to rattle poetry, all one word. Just say hi. I'll say hi back. And then I will, uh, call you when the time is right the other option if you just want to be on the phone totally fine too the number is 818-850-7727 that's 818-850-7727 just call let it ring a few times then hang up and you'll appear on my um on my call list and i'll just call you back as many poets as we can get to in the next um 45 minutes or so really because we uh, went a little long this week but we'll have time we'll definitely get to uh, first time callers so um 
I'm accepting some uh, waves right now on Skype from Zach Eddy and Christina, Christine Bissonette. Um, and then we have uh, Brent Stauffer. We have Richard Westheimer. We have a few other people who emailed me things. So we have a whole bunch of stuff to go through. We also have a prompt this week, which is um, to write a poem about the road more traveled by or the road more taken. And um, before I uh, take a brief break, let me also let you know that uh, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be A.E. Stallings. So um, that's why I um, slipped Eric some money so he would plug A.E. Stallings a lot. No, just kidding. It just happens that she's the next guest on the Rattlecast. We're trying something new. Um, A lot of times in the last few issues, we've had um, the actual audio video from the interview um, instead of a live show to give me a break. Um, But this time, we're having A.E. Stallings live. And uh, it's a chance to read more poems than we did that day when we did the interview. And it's also a chance, if you've read the conversation in Rattle Number 70, um, you can ask follow-up questions. So I'm going to see how that goes, if it's worthwhile. So if you enjoyed the interview with A.E. Stallings in Rattle Number 70, make sure that you uh, have some questions, like read it again, and have some questions to pass along based on the interview. We're just going to see if that works. And if it does, if you like this, we'll do it with every uh, with every issues interviewee. Um, and but if it doesn't really work out that way then maybe we'll uh (laughs) we'll just air the uh air the interviews again and give me a break so that is next tuesday and because a.e stallings lives in uh, athens greece uh, she can't come out at the normal time of course so it's going to be um seven hours ahead of time it's going to be 1 p.m eastern time tuesday march 2nd Uh, that's 1 p.m eastern time 10 a.m pacific 8 p.m for her in greece um, A.E. Stallings on Rattlecast number 82. So hope to see you then at the earlier time. Hope everybody can still make it. And uh, I'm going to stand up and stretch just for a minute, um, pull up some other poems and get things situated. Then I will be right back in maybe maybe 30 seconds or a minute. Okay, hang on. back thanks so much for your patience um, we have a bunch of people uh, lined up for the open lines and um, once again as I mentioned the prompt for this week was right here let me put it on screen Oops, that's this one Drop him down. Um, so that this week's prompt was the road not taken by Robert Frost is arguably one of the most famous poems in the English language write a poem that imagines a scenario in which the speaker takes the road more traveled that was the prompt for this week um, I have a really quick last-minute poem, sort of a parody of Frost, and I uh, I played tennis instead of uh, spending a lot of time on a poem this afternoon, but this was my poem really quick. Speed limits. Two roads diverged within a quiet valley, and knowing I could choose which path to roam, I gazed out far and took a careful tally of which had any cars. I chose the alley others had, the faster to get home. That is my little parody of... Uh, Robert Frost on the freeway with speed limits. Definitely like those roads with the higher speed limits. And this is Megan's poem, The Road More Taken. And of course, Megan picks the prompts every week and then writes a poem that's better than mine. That's kind of how the show goes. The Road More Taken. The trail is speckled with soda cans, dog shit, grocery lists on old receipts. Every rock graffitied, I was here. 
Every tree trunk carved, M loves T. Over the creek, someone made a bridge. On the other side, a wooden cross. The stranger ahead of me walks like she knows where she's going. I follow her orange backpack. Behind me, someone hums a song I recognize. I can't help but sing along, though I long for quiet. A foil wrapper shines in the dirt, as if meant for me to find vile and lovely what we leave behind. That was Megan's poem for The Road More Taken. And um, if you're new to the show, you do not have to share a poem based on the prompt. It's just because we have um, a lot of viewers, and me and Megan like to have prompts and write little poems and have fun. So um, we include a prompt every episode, but you can share whatever you'd like. If you um, would like to share your poem based on the prompt, feel free and please do. If you'd like to share something completely different, just you published recently and are proud of, that you wrote recently, that you wrote a long time ago and want to share, share whatever you like. We have a 206 number calling in right now. James Gaynor is uh, called in. Um, Zach Eddy, as I mentioned, let's see, um, Brent Stoffer's here, Richard Westheimer, we have a 914 number, so we'll get to everybody, um, and, uh, here are the numbers one last time, um, so email your poem first to openmic at rattle.com, or just a link to where it appears, and then, uh, uh, send me a chat message to Rattle Poetry over Skype, or call by phone, don't do both, because then I get confused, pick one or the other, uh, by phone, 818-850-7727. Two seven. I'll show the poem as you read it, um, whatever you'd like to share. Let's do, um, I just want to get to um, Nivedita Karthik first, because she is on the other, uh-oh. Yeah, she's on the other side of the world, and uh, it is. she has to go to work. Let's see. Okay, I'll just read Nivy's poem later. I try to get to Nivy first, because um, it is like 9 a.m. in uh, India where she is, but we already missed her. Sorry, Nivy, but I'll read your poem, though. Let's call up a first-time caller then, and let's do, um, yeah, um, let's see. Let's call up Zach Eddy first. Hey, Zach. Oh, I forgot to tell everybody. Um, I hear myself in the background, so X out of wherever you're listening to it, so you just have Skype open, because there's a delay, and otherwise you won't hear me. So for everybody else at home, do that too. Can you hear me, Zach? I can, yes. Excellent. Here you are, and you pulled in perfectly. Let me pull you, you into the broadcast stream. Here you go. So um, so how are you doing tonight? Um, I'm doing real good. What a um, fantastic reading and discussion that was. Um, yeah, these are, these are always fun. Um, there's so many great poets we've interviewed, and um, so go back through the archives and, and watch some more. Um, but it's great to watch live. I think live is the best because you can participate too. Um, do you know, are you... Um, a student or friends with uh, with Derek? Yeah, Derek was um, an ex-teacher of mine at Wenatchee Valley College. Oh, I, great. Yeah, since made it out um, to Moscow, Idaho at the University of Idaho, earning my MFA degree. Excellent. Was it? Uh, did you plan on going into poetry uh, before his classes? No, Derek was absolutely um, <laughs> instrumental in that. And I mean, just from chatting with him, I'm sure you could see why he's a He's a real champion for the art. Yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting how that always works. It always seems like there's somebody who sort of steers you in this path and this little club that we have where we love poetry and, and share it. Um, so what do you have to share tonight? Um, I have a little poem that uh, it it's called You Are Wasting Your Life. And so it kind of um, inverts the last line of the famous um, James Wright poem, Lying in a Hammock at William Duffy's Farm in Pine Island, Minnesota. And I guess I'll um, specially dedicate it to anyone who kind of shrugged their shoulders and said to me, good luck with that. Uh, 
when I quit my factory job to get an English degree. Oh, wow. Um, you are wasting your life, says my grandmother-in-law's ex-husband's ghosts, whose trips back and forth up and down the Columbia River outnumber the wasting days I recall. And who hasn't asked me in earnest more times than are worth explaining what it is I'm doing now? In her creased wranglers, Grammy wrenches dandelions from the neighbor's lawn. Clutching a marb, she sprays for paper wasps. I bet they're all listening now to the river's quiet hum, to her schizophrenic niece's voice flickering in and out from a landline, resting under fluorescent light at the Victorian desk she insists I inherit and never refinish or sit at. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that with Zach Eddy with uh, You're Wasting Your Life, a, a poem that a, a lot of people here can relate to, I think. Um, thanks so much for sharing that, Zach. Glad you could join us. Thank you. Good night. Okay. Yes, yeah, so that was Zach Eddy. Uh, we got a 30360 number calling, which I think is Washington State. So maybe that's another um, um, another poet. Let's see. Let's call up now this 206 number and see who that is. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? Yeah, I sure did, Tim. I'm going to lower the uh, volume here so I don't have to hear you as I'm reading. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Great interview. Totally enjoyed it. I'm a good friend of Derek and I have been for several decades. And the poem I'm going to read, he selected for the journal Terrain.org, where he is an editor. Uh, so that's one reason I'm uh, going to read this. Uh, and he also has taught this to uh, some of his students in Wenatchee Valley. So I thought it would be an appropriate poem to share. Excellent. Well, called... who, first, oh, wait, wait, Slada, who am I talking to so I can find the poem? <laughs> David D. Horowitz. Ah, David Horowitz. Okay, let me um, let me pull it up for everybody. Sure. Um, Take your time, brother. Yeah. Oh, it was in terrain. I was looking for a file attachment. I see. Okay. Um, yeah, so so which one? We have First Stars, Last Light, and we have Flickr. Right. That's right. First Stars, Last Light. Excellent. Okay, let me, let me put it on screen here. First Stars, Last Light. Perfect. Let me know when you're ready and when I should read. I don't yeah, go, do anything. go ahead. Yeah, we're good. Thank you so much. Appreciate all you're doing for poetry and poets. We, I don't ever take this for granted. I'm a small press publisher. I know how tough it is. So believe me, I appreciate what you're doing. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for saying that. And glad you, you could bet. join us. Yeah. You bet. First stars, last light. He knew the night would soon arrive. The turquoise honey glow. First stars above the freeways full of cars, the downtown towers lit alive with golden bustle. And he knew that wintertime would soon arrive, lamps on each afternoon by five, leaf-freeing gusts and sleet, blue, cold sun, the Christmas music on in elevators. And he knew death strikes, at mom now, then at you, him, everyone. So every dawn he prays for breath and life. When gone, who knows? He knows he's still alive. That death might happen during drive or dance with Christmas music on. Ah, excellent poem. That was First Stars, Last Light by David Horowitz. Thanks so much for, for joining and sharing that, David. Thanks so much, Tim. Really appreciate what you did with, with Derek, and have a great evening. I'll let some other people get to it, and thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks. Have a good night.
You bet. Bye-bye. Yeah, it was David Horowitz, and uh, excellent poem. And I forgot to even talk about Terrain uh, Magazine, terrain.org. Um, um, Derek is the uh, poetry editor there. It's a wonderful, wonderful the journal of um, echo literature, I guess you'd call it. Um, now let's go to Christine Bissonette. I saw Christine in the chat uh, windows and things. Let's see what Christine has. Journal of Echo Literature. Hey, Christine. Yeah, I just hear myself in the background. So turn out of wherever you're listening to it and then I'll. Yeah. Awesome. Hello. So how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. And uh, where are you calling from? I'm from, um, from, I'm calling from Vancouver, BC. Ah, and were you uh, a friend or student of uh, Derek's? I was, I'm not. Um, I just kind of had been looking at your magazine for quite a while and just found this, this uh, podcast or this um, open mic live thing recently and thought I would join. Oh, very cool. I'm so glad yeah. that you could. Uh, what do you want to share with us tonight? Um, well, I was inspired by the prompt and I pulled out um, a journal and kind of, um, started kind of playing with um, moving, turning a poem into, uh, turning a journal entry into a poem, and I called it The Amounted. Okay, um, let me, uh, just one second. I don't want to give away your phone number, which is... Yeah, funny. I realized I didn't mean to, I shouldn't have Yeah, let that. me just, I'll just edit it out. I <laughs> <laughs> um, have to edit the PDF really quick. We'll leave your name now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And then close the editing. Okay. So um, go, this is the, um, um, the Amounted. The Amounted. Yeah, go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. I've been so afraid of failure and of being invisible or forgotten or worse, remembered. But by a sad shrug from a room full of shoulders seeming to say she could have amounted to so much. And so I've been quick to speak questions with a voice I disliked its tremor and softness repeating like sucked in air, not because I needed the answer, but because I needed to know that I had the ability to ask if I needed to, can I stop now because I'm tired? A sigh, yes. And so I did stop, took the road more traveled and allowed my wanting and searching for entrances to soften, a glorious complacency that felt like a life. For the first time, that rush of somewhere was here, and I knew where to go, could follow the rhythm of a day that needed nothing spectacular, and neither did I, for a time. But perhaps I was just biding my time while growing a voice I found I'd started to love. And when I did, I continued my asking where to next, and waited too long for an answer, hoping, you see, after all this time, that a ladder would be illuminated before me, and I'd finally begin to amount with the ease the passionate profess after they've embraced what they came here to do. I saw no ladder, and wondered instead if each and every one of us is on our own wonderfully specific and uniquely challenging hero's journey. And perhaps not every journey points up towards the skies to a place that towers over the rest of us to join they, the amounted, who hold cameras at arm's length in front of their beautiful mansions and say to those of us still searching, want to get here too. Maybe some journeys go downward, dismounting us from everything we thought we knew for certain and challenging us to release into gravity and allow ourselves to fall for a while and be, for even the briefest of moments, nothing but something akin to that flash of inspiration, easily lost if not immediately written down. 
And what if, to that flash of inspiration, you put down your pen and said, I'm okay with losing you, because you are not the only idea that I will ever have. You might not even be the best one. Excellent poem. That was, uh, that was, oh, where was that? The Amounted by Christine Bissonette. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, wonderful reading, too. A good, good rhythm and pacing. Thanks so much for joining. I hope you can join us again, Christine, soon. Thank you. Bye. Yep. Good night. Okay. That was uh, Christine Bissonette. And um, my father-in-law's name is Bissonette. I, uh, I meant to ask if there's any relation. I don't think so, but he's Canadian, too. Let us see. Um, let's call up. I think we missed. Um, oh, yeah, we have this 360. I try to get to the first time callers first. And, and we have a 509. The 206 was. Oh, that was. Um, let me add the 206 to my phone book really quick before I forget. 206 was um, um, David Horowitz. Okay, just for next time, then we know who's calling. And um, let's call up now this this 360 number. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? I would love to. Excellent. Yeah. And who am I talking to? My name is Anita Holliday. Hi, Anita. And where are you calling from? I'm calling from Orcas Island, the San Juan Islands of Washington State. Excellent. Um, let's see. Okay, so this you have, um, oh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, dead at 101? Did he die? He did, oh, actually, my... just today. Oh, wow, I didn't today. see that news. Today oh. or last night. Yeah. Yeah, so it's actually very very timely, although I didn't know him, but I wanted to just share it today. Yeah, well, I'm so glad he could. I'm so sorry to hear that news. He's such a, you know, such an important figure, such a, 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 like yeah. a lighthouse beacon or something for literature. I know, I'm, for those who haven't heard, I'm sorry to be passing it on in this way. <laughs> no, I'm glad to know. I actually saw on um, Twitter, I was scrolling through and saw his face. I just figured it was his birthday again, and he was 102. <laughs> so, because mm. hmm. it is this time of year. I think we published a birthday poll when he was 100, I think, on uh, Poetry Spawn. Yeah, but... actually, I, be- I just looked it up. I believe his birthday was March 24th. Yeah. Um, I had a really dear friend who had met him. That's what this poem is about. She was just about not quite a year younger. Her birth, 101st birthday would have been March 1st. Oh, wow. Well, thanks so much for letting us know and sharing this. Let's, let's hear it. Yeah. Okay. Um, here we are. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, dead at 101. The Times headline never softens it. No talk of passing on or gone, just dead at 101. One degree of separation from this man I might have met, but didn't even read, yet one known by one I knew. Inez, in the days she reached beyond her native Oklahoma, trading for a time her white oak hills for ones that trolley cars descended to the bay, and opened her mind far beyond the confines of her parents' evangelism, her grandparents' holiness, even Aunt Annie's old traditions, to hear other ways of praise. My only regret now, as I realize, Ferlinghetti led the way, but barely, born less than a year before my friend, once his friend, or at least acquaintance, 
is that I never asked her for more details, colors that make a poem pictorial, whether coffee houses yet open doors onto North Beach sidewalks, or if the only place together was still his bookstore, City Lights, whether his paintings graced the walls, whether poets were announced by posters, or if you had to just show up and wait for someone to begin sharing their latest words that veered the country from its narrow 50s course, whether Diane de Prima had arrived before she left, or just the male poets whose names would all come to recognize, Ginsburg and the others, whether she met Kirby, Lawrence's wife, whether he and his poet friends were warm or cool to her as she absorbed their friendly banter, their crafted words, rejecting the war culture, the rigid bounds for loving, the materialism of their age, whether her hair was already long and darkly braided some 15 years before wannabe natives would crowd the streets of a nearby neighborhood turning the hate briefly into love. Oh, beautiful tribute poem. Thanks so much for sharing that and for letting us know. That was uh, Anita Lee Holiday. Thanks so much, Anita. Yeah, well, thank you so much. A great privilege to be able to uh, share this. And I did come here because of Derek. I don't know him well, but I've met him. We've had a little bit of correspondence back and forth. So, oh, that's great. Well, I hope you can, here. Yeah, I hope you can join us again sometime. We're here every Tuesday night. Certainly will. Excellent. Thanks. Good Thank night. Thank you. Good night. <clears throat> yeah, um, that was Anita Holiday with uh, some news about Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Thanks so much for sharing that, Anita. Um, let's see. I'm going to do... Um... Yeah, so I'm going to call up uh, Richard Westheimer next because he. I keep saying that we. It, it'd be nice to share other people's poems as well. And um, Richard says he has a poem um, by Billy Collins he'd like to read that relates to the prompt. And, you know, we talked in a lot of episodes about um, how important it is to share other poems and poems we love, too. And um, so if anybody wants to share, like, a favorite poem that they just read or something or, or, or some book they just bought that they loved and they want to share a poem out of it, I want these open lines to be for that, too. So let's call up Richard Westheimer. We'll um, get to as many other people as we can, too. There's still 50, 20 minutes or so. Um, but let's call up Richard and see what, uh, what Billy Collins poem he has. Hey, Richard, how you doing tonight? Hey, Tim. I thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd give this a uh, new, um, uh, request of yours a try since I came up dry with the prompt. Poem. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I want this to be a really great podcast, um, for, for just listening to and appreciating poetry. And so um, recommendations are something that we should sort of have, too, you know. So um, that'd be great. And I know Billy Collins reads our poems on his, um, his, his show sometimes. So um, it'll be nice to, uh, to return the favor here. So, um, yeah, so you have Velocity. Velocity. And I sent you two versions. I found, I found one that was had the proper line breaks on. It was the second version. Um, um, let me double check, make sure I'm looking at the right one. It says resend is the subject line in the email. Uh, okay, I didn't. You're right. So okay, here we go. So whenever you're ready, go ahead. Okay, and and just quickly, the when I thought of the road more traveled, I thought of people myself personally considering 
my own mortality. Oh, yeah. So this, this poem spoke to this for me. Okay. Velocity by Billy Collins. I, in the club car that morning, I had my notebook on my lap and my pen uncapped, looking every inch the writer, right down to the little writer's frown on my face. But there was nothing to write except about life and death and the low warning sound of the train whistle. I did not want to write about the scenery that was flashing past, cows spread over a pasture, hay rolled up meticulously, things you see once and will never see again. But I kept my pen moving by drawing over and over again the face of a motorcyclist in profile, for no reason I can think of a biker with sunglasses and a weak chin leaning forward helmetless, his long, thin hair trailing behind him in the wind. I also drew many lines to indicate speed, to show the air becoming visible as it broke over the biker's face, the way it was breaking over the face of the locomotive that was pulling me towards Omaha and whatever lay beyond Omaha for me and all the other stops to make before the time would arrive to stop for good. We must always look at things from the point of view of eternity, the college theologians used to insist, from which I imagine we would all appear to have speed lines trailing behind us as we rush along the road of the world, as we rush down the long tunnel of time the biker, of course, drunk on the wind, but also the man reading by a fire, speed lines coming off his shoulders and his book, and the woman standing on a beach studying the curve of the horizon, even the child asleep on a summer night, speed lines flying from the posters of her bed, from the white tips of her pillowcases, from the edges of her perfectly motionless body uh excellent poem that was uh billy collins with velocity read by richard westheimer thanks so much for sharing a favorite poem richard i appreciate it yeah thanks tim good to see you or i actually i can't see you but good oh to hear. i'm blocked again let me um <laughs> for the next caller i'll switch the cameras uh, okay thanks richard okay thanks tim bye um, yeah, so that was Richard Westheimer, of course, reading a poem by Billy Collins. And um, if you want to share a poem um, that you just love and want to share, um, I should say you don't have to send the text. You can just read it. Um, but since Richard did, I showed it anyway. Um, let's see. Let's see. So Daniel um, Tijuana Gringo would like to read. Um, let me uh, turn my see if I can turn my camera on again really quick. Switch to... Um, Switch to a different camera, just so people at home, when you call in, you can see me. Is that going to work? No, my camera's just dying. I don't, I don't understand. After like an hour, Skype doesn't want to look at my camera anymore. I guess they get sick of me. Um, 951 is calling, so I'll, I'll call back that. Um, let's see. We got a message. Please read it yourself. Custom rules mores from Daniel Tijuana Gringo. Let me uh, let me find that. I will. We have um, let's see. 
Ah, okay, here we go. This is, um, <clears throat> that's what it says on this Skype. It's actually Daniel Charles Thomas. And um, this is poem, Custom, or Rules, Customs, More, is it Mores? Mores? Um, and he, he asked on the, he texted me and asked if I'd read this. So sure, this is uh, Rules, Customs, Mores. And uh, here we go, screen view. <clears throat> Our feet are stepping stones, walking one way after another, forward to destined destiny, destination, where we have all traveled before and more and will again. This is the rule, our way, not a moray eel swimming around these rocks under the sea but rather custom rules a pathway into heaven or hell the broad wide road of moors in unto destruction traveled there's rules customs moors i guess it really is from uh, a great poem um that was from um um daniel charles thomas let's call up next um, actually, uh, Maribade Carr is here, or, um, can't join us. She has a four-month-old baby, and so can't, uh, doesn't want the phone to ring. And I completely agree <laughs> and understand um, if the baby is sleeping, we do not want to wake up the baby. So let us, um, I'll read this poem, or I just have to, to pull it up on my screen here. This is um, Division and Diversity. I knew it was coming at age 21. I didn't feel the seed tell me Europe was a tree across the pond, silent roots of my churning belly. I didn't feel the seed tell me it was time to fight, silent roots of my churning belly. So I took my first flight. It was time to fight, but I wished it away. So I took my first flight as it hung on like the day. But I wished it away, hoping I'd stay over there. But it hung on like the day always fighting somewhere. Excellent. It's division and diversity. Some great um, repetitions and rhythms in that one from Maribade Carr. Um, let's call up. Let's see. So um, Chloe Sensian. Is Chloe? Oh, we have some uh, phones we haven't talked to yet. Let's... Um, Let's try to find this 509. We have two missed calls from 509. This might be Chloe. Let's see. See who answers there. Oh, I think we... Oh, it's ringing now. Okay. So the phone is ringing. Hello? Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? Hi, yeah, this is Holly Thorpe. Oh, Holly, good to see you. Let me um, let me pull this up for you. Um, Holly Thorpe, so we have um, Autumn Equinox 2020. Is that what you wanted to share? Yes, it is. Excellent. And um, and you're a student of Derek's, right? So we have several students. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was a student of Derek's, um, and he's definitely the reason why I'm in my MFA program at Eastern right now. Excellent. Well, that's always great to hear that the teachers have that influence on people. Oh, yeah, he's a local legend. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I picked this poem because I don't know about everyone else, but I am desperate to get back into my garden. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. I forget being in L.A. that <laughs> I mean, we're up in the mountains, so we have seasons, but but they're the, the, the winters aren't very extreme. We get a bunch of snow, and then it's beautiful. 
Um, I, you know, we can get we can get in our garden all the time. Uh, Autumn Equinox twenty twenty. Let's hear it whenever you're ready. Sure. One. It's overrun with weeds, and the dirt is hard, but the fruit grows ripe and bright. I held a pumpkin like a little sun, like a fire in my hands, but oranges don't grow here. I fed myself, and then I fed many others. Put on your own oxygen mask first, or however it goes. I fed the neighbors, the visitors, the chickens, and eventually the dirt, knowing it pays back with interest. It was a bad year for tomatoes. They came out small and scarred. I threw them to the hens and watched them scuffle over them. I think their favorite color is red, the hot red of tomatoes and the soft red of overripe watermelon. It was a bad year for tomatoes, but I don't eat them anyway. Two. My small field of wildflower blooms turned to paper mache and then back into dust. I don't know if they'll come back next year, but I thank them for their company when they go. Not everything lived, but what did lived well. The lemon balm grew fragrant and wild. I swore to make tea of it, but never did. Instead, I crushed a leaf between my fingers. This is how we greeted each other. I've let the squash plants wither. They were generous, and I would have felt wrong to remove them before they were ready. The chickens, too, will die of old age long after they've quit laying. I will miss most their loud and faltering songs each morning, announcing to anyone who'd care to know that an egg was imminent. Three. Sometimes I see small sparrows, brave or naive, bathe in the abundant dust. They preen and speak softly amongst each other. The cat is an adept hunter. In late spring or early fall, I'll find one of them dead on the back steps, always left where I'll find it, almost never bloodied and almost always entirely dead. The weight of its small body fills me with a certain hollow sadness. They're so impossibly light, but I feel their heaviness in my palm. It's the weight of death, and it makes all small bodies heavier. I put them in the bushes at the edge of the yard, let the insects and weather lay them to rest. There have no, been no dead birds on my step for a while now. While the garden flourishes under hot sun, the cat and I grow lazy. Four. I sat with my garden this evening, silently thanked it, promised I would collect the remaining watermelons, a few small pumpkins as bright as suns, peppers that have grown long and shiny. I won't rush, but when it's ready... I'll shake the dirt from the long, dead roots and let the chickens and rain do the slow work of preparing the soil for spring. Excellent images and descriptions there. A wonderful poem. That was uh, Autumn Equinox. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing that. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Hope you can call in again soon. Yeah, bye. Bye. Yeah, that was Holly Thorpe. Um, Let's see. So I have an unknown person. Sometimes... um, Let's see. I'm just going to answer this. 951. I was about to call 951. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? Sorry for just answering. Um, Are you there? Yeah. Hi. Hey, I hear myself in the background, though, so turn that off so the the delay doesn't confuse you. Yeah. Sure. My name is Chloe. Excellent. I was hoping to find you because we have this uh, good-looking poem here. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, here it is. Kill the roommate. Uh, 
And um, is there anything you want to say about yeah. it? Or um, are you a student of uh, Derek's? I'm not. Um, we just met by divine chance, I suppose. Um, I just really appreciated his poem, mm-hmm. Exactly What Needs Saying. Oh, and great. I sent him an email. Mm-hmm. And he's been emailing me events ever since. So, <laughs> Oh, very cool. Well, I'm so glad he could attend. Yeah, I'm so glad he could join us tonight. Um, is there anything you want to say about this poem before you read it? Um, this comes from a vulnerable place mm-hmm. when things were pretty tense um, with my brother and I. Okay, well, let's hear it. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. This poem is called Kill the Roommate. I'm sorry, one moment. No, no problem. Okay. Sharing space wordless. Triggers on my tongue, stuck unexploded by fear. I can't breathe this air, for the roommate lingers indefinitely here. How can I be me, unleashed to express, yet experience warns? Will tomorrow be better? No fireworks show, mundane rabbiting. Can I endure the smoke? Thick tension cries for ease. Murder our guest. Absent a crowd of three, harmony of a pair. Unhindered at last, we breathe. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing. That was Kill the Roommate. Are things uh, going better now? Yes. Yes, the roommate has died. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, congratulations on that. Um, Hope you have a good, good night, Chloe. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Good night. Yes, that was Chloe Sension with uh, Kill the Roommate. Um, Ah, here, Carlton Johnson wanted us to read one. Um, Let's see, we have, ah, we're running out of time, but let's do Carlton Johnson's, and then we'll do one more caller, and then I'll have to um, call it there. Um, I'll read Carlton Johnson's, though, first. Uh, This is The Road More Traveled by Carlton Johnson. I found myself in the 408, a sign declaring construction next five miles. Why me? I hate these jams. Joining, rejoining, merging with the school buses on tour, the firefighters, I mean, the freighters, the semis, the cabs, the slabs of concrete on the back of a truck rigged with orange bungee cord, crawling an endless line of lemmings looking for a cliff. So slow, so damn slow, it makes so little sense to be bumper to bumper, slipping to slumber with this vast immeasurable number groping forward. Occasionally a horn blares, the mating song of a dying VW or Trans Am, as an endless line of eye rolls and shoulder shrugs, the many lead-footed trying to hold back, resisting the temptation to barrel ahead, to plow into a dune buggy, heading to the beach. Does it really ever end? That is The Road More Traveled by Carlton Johnson. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carlton. Great rhythms um, and sounds in that poem. A pleasure to read. Um, let us do, we have one more, we have time for maybe one more, um, let's see, I'm trying to find someone who hasn't been on 
in a while. Second, yeah, let's do. Um, let's call up James Gaynor. I'm sorry that this has to be the last person. There's just too many people to get to tonight. But it's always a wonderful problem to have having um, the open lines being completely full. Uh, but James hasn't been on in several weeks, so let's have. Uh, let's call up James Gaynor. Maybe we'll read Vicky Miko's if it's really short too. Hello. Please leave a message after the... <laughs> so I guess James is not there. And let's instead call up Victoria Garden. And she has a road more traveled. Hey, Victoria, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Uh, you're going to be our last caller for tonight. And you have a road more traveled poem. Um, do you want to come in on video? Or, yeah. Um, okay. Yep. Yeah. I think I am on you, you are. am I? Oh, there you are. Yep, you're here. You can't see me, unfortunately, because of my, my issue that I'm having. But we see you. Um, so uh, so what do you have for us? You have The Road More Traveled. Yes, I have The Road More Traveled. And I was thinking about Frost poems and kind of got into an argument, uh, an argumentative mood about whether he really was all committed to the less traveled road. Oh, maybe, so. yeah, yeah, maybe we'll, uh, maybe after, after you read this, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. Cause, um, I, I, I think it's the most interesting poem. One of the most interesting poems in English actually, but, um, okay, go ahead with this whenever you're ready. The road more traveled. Yeah. And, uh, do you have it? I mailed it. In. Yeah, I have it right here. It's on screen for everybody at home. Okay. Thank you. We've all been there, pondering the fork in the road that stretches through Robert Frost, Yellow Wood. Or maybe it was a stream insisting choose as it chose us. We've all been there, back paddling against current, shoving paddle against shoreline, heaving against forces of a less traveled way. Ahead, the toppled tree, the reaching branches, the limestone squeezing in as it does in a cave. There, too, the last traveled path may offer no way of return, just a deeper descent as the way leads on. If we should spot frost from our careening canoe, or in online hits and likes and posts, or in literature text or yellowed pages of verse, he will touch our hopes and regrets to draw us from the more traveled, duty-bound path. He will claim something doesn't love a wall, and amuse himself and us with what-ifs and mischief, but work with the neighbor who loves the road his father took and places stones in tradition's more traveled way. Though Frost will call that way dark beyond shade and find his own loaves and balls sunlit, though he will place the apple trees, pines, cows, and elves in a poem, he will arrive with his neighbor where they shared fence ends where their shared fence ends, duty done. On a snowy evening, going home, his road less traveled, goes through a woods dark enough for trespassing. The owner lives in the village, so frost lauders until the little horse, trained well to know the road more traveled, roused him from whimsy. Off they go. The horse burdened with clods of snow, dreams of hay, the poet spurred by promises and miles, rides along, duty-bound. It takes an ice storm and birches forever bent for frost to find life like a pathless wood. We've all been there, on a vertical climb, dreaming of riding down saplings, 
The pass splits and offers two ways to the crest, but granite offers no hint of the one more traveled, or which offers a sheer rock face. No ropes or cleats, just Robert Frost in a pocket. We set forth hoping earth is the right place for climbing to places where no cell phone works and for meandering our way, arriving where our words and imaginings take us and perhaps coming to rest in Frost's pathless woods, duty done. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that poem. That was The Road More Traveled um, by Vicki Garten. Thanks so much for being on, Vicki, and sharing that. Yes, thank you. Yep, good night. Okay, yeah, that was Victoria Garten. Um, and let me see, really quick, let's see if um, sometimes it's just a very short... Um, where'd it go? Vicky Miko. Yeah, I thought it might be. So Vicky Miko has um, some Haiga for us, The Road More Taken, and we can get through these quick. Um, I'd love to share these. I love Vicky's Haiga. And uh, here this is, The Road More Taken. Let me um, zoom in, get rid of that, drop that down. Okay, this is... Uh, East Trail merges into the west, a blurred sun. And we have this um, desert landscape, a barren close-up of a plastic fork. Um, is Vicky Miko's photograph. Go with this. The East Trail merges into the west, a blurred sun. And the other one, um, the, pompous gra the pompous grass. Did you say pampas? The pampas grass waves on the summit, a wayward wind. Then we have this um, stay on trail sign with it looks like an anarchy graffiti on it, that the A with a circle around it. Those are, uh, let me read that again. The pampas grass waves on the summit or wayward wind. So two haiga, that's uh, poems, um, haiku with uh, photographs uh, by Vicky Miko. Thanks for sharing that for the prompt, Vicky. Um, now we're just talking about maybe really quick. Um, I don't really have time to talk about it, but I was thinking about bringing up Frost poem since it was um, the prompt for this week. Well, we were talking to uh, Derek Sheffield about um, about political poetry because I think it's actually um, I, I read uh, the road. Is it the road not taken? Um, and let's pull it up here. So I read this when I was a kid in high school, and I just thought I, I was actually kind of shocked at how sort of lame it was <laughs> for Robert Frost, who um, just has wonderful poetry. This is from the Poetry Foundation. But um, um, the thing that I didn't realize while I was in high school, because of the way it was taught, was I thought this was a poem about um, someone taking the, the, un, um, the, the road less traveled and um, that making all the difference, you know? And, um, and so it's a poem about sort of an anthem for American independence or something like that. And so I never, I thought it was sort of a boring poem and never looked at it again until maybe 10 years ago. And uh, David Orr came out with an essay, which I think a lot of people knew this, but I never did. No one ever told me this. And I never read it again because I thought it was a boring poem. Um, but if you look closely, um, the paths are the same. Um, the uh, then took the other just as fair. Um, they really warn, warn them really about the same. I mean, they're the same path. One's not less traveled than the other. And um, at the end, when Frost 
takes the uh, road less traveled by, and that's made all the difference, when really it made no difference whatsoever. And this is just sort of a poem about the, the illusions that we tell ourselves as we move through life, about the things that matter and uh, the excuses that we make for sort of, I don't know, the actions and, and what transpires. We blame it on the, the road less traveled. And um, it was actually a poem sort of poking fun at a friend of his uh, who, who sort of behaved this way all the time. And I just think that's just a great poem to do. I think it's hilarious, actually. And, um, but the interesting thing is that it feels like when you're talking about that two ways um, political poetry works, um, political poetry can be sort of a, an anthem for some kind of good value. That's what it's sort of read as, um, as something about the importance of independence and, um, and sort of bold decisions and things like that and being your own person. It'd be great for a uh, Toyota commercial or something. But um, it's actually a poem about the way we deceive ourselves. And, um, and that's the deeper sort of truth behind the poem. And I think, you know, political poems work on that level where um, they're about something deeper that we didn't know we knew. We kind of knew that deep down, but we don't know we knew it. Anyway, that is just what I was thinking, but I didn't want to bring it up and sort of sidetrack the discussion with uh, Derek. But um, now next week, the prompt for... Um, um, Rattlecast. And remember, it's an early one. It's Tuesday at 10 a.m. So I'm going to have to actually write my poem ahead of time <laughs> this time. And um, next week's prompt is going to be, um, here we go. Next week's prompt is, write a poem about one or more of the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire. That's next week's prompt. Write a poem about one of the four elements, one or more of the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire. Bonus points if you get all four in, I'm sure, but you don't have to. And uh, that will be our prompt for next week. And as I mentioned a few times during the show, next week's guest is going to be A.E. Stallings. Um, her newest book is Like, but she was interviewed in Rattle Number 70. Um, Derek mentioned it a whole bunch of times in this interview. And um, it's a really great, great conversation I had with, um, with Alicia uh, back in, I guess that was September when we did that. And she's going to be on to read a lot more poems and talk more about the stuff we talked about then. So um, read that interview first and come with like follow-up questions you have. That would be really great. Um, you know you, you know a lot about Alicia. It's a it's a 25-page or something interview in round number 70. So check that out um, and come with some questions on uh, Tuesday, March 2nd. And note the special time seven hours earlier because she's in Greece and we can't do it in the middle of the night for her. That wouldn't make sense. So it's going to be 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time with Alicia, or A.E. Stallings. And we have um, just wonderful uh, poets coming up. We have, um, after that, we have Anthony Tao in, in China. We're talking about the poetry scene in China, which is going to be fascinating. Then we have um, Wendy Vidalock, Denise Duhamel, Tim Adonizio, um, some specialty sort of interesting shows with a lot of content. So be sure to tune in. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you've clicked the like button. And um, no matter where you're watching this, whether it's after the fact on iTunes or one of those uh, podcast platforms or uh, live on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, wherever you can do it, click something, make sure you're subscribed, make sure you're following us, and you'll get all these great conversations and interviews and wonderful readings of poems every Tuesday at least. So hope you enjoyed this. Hope you have a great night. I will talk to you soon. Good night.